This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From BBC Science Focus, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today we're talking about the evolution of religion, its origins and its future. I'm joined by Robin Dunbar, a professor of evolutionary psychology at Oxford University. His new book, How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures, pulls together a decade of research between dozens of scientists to build a picture of why humans are drawn to spirituality and religion. To kick things off, I asked Robin whether spirituality was just a side effect of early humans trying to make sense of things that go bump in the night. I think the answer is yes and no, actually, because I, I my view would be that the kind of old um, perception of how things got going in one sense is actually right. It was the sort of going into deep caves and having, you know, distorted psychological stroke psychic experiences from altered mind states uh possibly even helped along by some obscure substances from time to time which appear to have been discovered very early in the course of our uh, evolution as a species it kind of provided the basis for thinking about the possibility that there was another world out there but i that said I suppose the pitch of the book really is that the underpinnings to religion are essentially mysticism. It's trance-based capacity that we have to enter into what appears to be a spirit world, another parallel world to ours. And so, you know, the bumps in the night become important in that context because they provide you with something to that you need to explain, but in the absence of being able to enter into trance states and go on what 
was is always referred to as spirit travels in the spirit world, um, you kind of wouldn't have any kind of basis for explaining uh, the the bumps in the night other than everyday physical explanations. So you kind of wouldn't go beyond, you know, there's a lion creeping up <laughs> and causing the twig to snap in the forest, or maybe worse still, actually, the people from the next door valley. So you take it from there and and you uh, build a you know very convincing argument that we actually we needed a, a religion in a sense or uh, at least religion was instrumental in our evolution and our capacity to grow to the the point we we're at today is that right yes i mean the the essence of the problem i think that our deeper ancestors faced was the need to increase the size of groups that they lived in in order to protect themselves from external threats threats out there now normally in primates in general those external threats uh, for which they uh, live in groups as the defense against them is predators the simplest and easiest way to uh, reduce your predation risk uh, as you're wandering around the forests and the savannas is simply to do so in groups. So what you find in primates, monkeys and apes, and indeed probably most other mammals and to some extent birds as well, is uh, the more predator risky the habitat is, the more exposed it is, the bigger the groups the species wanders around in. That's a kind of passive form of defense. You're not actually sort of chasing predators away occasionally that does actually happen but most of the time you're just relying on the fact that predators aren't willing to attack large numbers of animals it's just not worth their while they prefer to look for weak and feeble ones on their own <laughs> just it's much less hard work for them to get get dinner with humans maybe with the chimpanzees or some of the great apes at least those predators seem to have been generalized into members of your own species, uh, your neighbours who have the disconcerting habit of constantly attacking you. Um, and so this has seemed to have created an extra pressure to live in bigger and bigger groups. So while they were in small monkey ape-sized groups, the kinds of classic mechanisms for creating social cohesion within the group, as say social grooming, leafing through the fur, uh, and sort of uh, uh, removing bits of vegetation so on, uh, worked perfectly fine. But once they exceeded the size that monkeys and apes normally live in, pushing up towards the kind of sizes of groups that we live in today, then they had to find other mechanisms for adding to that grooming mechanism that, that actually triggered the same same mechanism in the brain um, but allowed them to if you like groom at a distance virtually with with more people simultaneously because grooming is very limited you know it's a one-on-one -on -one activity and that's what sets this upper limit uh, and what came in as a series of behaviors which are still all part of our sort of social toolkit actually things like laughter as a form of chorusing singing singing without words um uh, dancing eventually things like feasting together telling emotional sub stories and religion and and those last three i think particularly the storytelling and the religious com religion component uh, had to wait for 
fully modern language, human language to evolve, which clearly came in with our own species and uh, rather than bef- earlier than that. Because, you know, well, storytelling, it's obvious, but religion depends on being able to explain to somebody else what your experiences are, these kind of transcendental experiences. It's, it's, it's fine for you to have them. Uh, and I'm sure sure you do a lot of good for yourself, but it's kind of like going and pumping iron in the gym on your own. <laughs> if you really want to get a good uh, hit from, from, from this effect, then you need to do it with other people, which means you've got to explain to them what's going on and got to explain to them, is, you know, we've got to do it together. It, it's, it's, don't go up to the gym on your own. Let's, let's go jogging as a, as a group effectively uh is is the storyline if you like because when these activities are done in synchrony um as most of them are you know we laugh in synchrony we sing in synchrony we dance in synchrony we eat in synchrony uh we lift our glasses and say cheers in synchrony uh all these social things are done in synchrony including the rituals of religion then it seems to ramp up the effect of um, this bonding mechanism in the brain quite dramatically. And it appears to be principally the rituals of religion that do that. They're, they're the key thing that sort of triggers this endorphin system in the brain. And the rituals are often part and parcel of the things we do anyway, you know, singing, dancing, you know, think of Coptic uh, priests in Ethiopia, or the deacons rather than the priests, they, it, it services they dance before the altar or before, technically before the Ark of the Covenant, which they claim to have, um, uh, having lifted it from Jerusalem <laughs> in King Solomon's time. Uh, but every altar in every church has in its altar a sort of, if you like, a, 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 um, a version of the, the Ark of the Covenant. So they dance before the Ark of the Covenant as King David danced before the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible. So, you know, for all those, and indeed, I suppose there are, you know, sort of the occasional uh, sects and cults that even engage in laughter as a, a religious ritual, famously. Uh, so all these things, you know, telling emotion, big emotional stories in the form of sermons or readings from the various good books appropriate to the particular religion, uh, eating together, um, having, you know, meals after a service, as many religions do, the Sikhs uh, and some extent Islam, especially this point, you know, after uh, Ramadan, um, communal meals. Uh, all these things are, are very powerful mechanisms of bonding that we use outside the religious context in normal everyday life. So religion has kind of latched onto those and, 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 and exploited them, if you like, but then wrapped this, what amounts to a theological framework around it, which provides uh, an explanation for why it should work, if you like, and indeed, perhaps more importantly, why you should keep turning up every week <laughs> to, get, <laughs> to get your, <laughs> your hit, as it were. <laughs> Uh, but these these are late. I have to say that that kind of theological component appears to arrive uh, uh, very late in the course of history. For most of our evolutionary history as a species, and remember we're only about 200, 250,000 years old as a species, for most of that period there wasn't a theology. You have these kind of shamanic type, animist type, 
religions that you still see in hunter-gatherers. You know, they're trance-based, they're immersive in the sense that everybody is involved, and, and very often they're based around dancing and singing, but they don't have any sense of gods usually, um, uh, and certainly not a god that hands down a moral code. So their moral codes are purely social. You know, this is how we've always done it. You know, don't ask questions, just do it. Whereas when you have the doctrinal religions coming in, they seem to sort of appear all around about eight thousand years ago in the beginning of the Neolithic. Then you have a kind of theological superstructure imposed on this sort of ancient trance-based animist type um, uh, religions, uh, which essentially prov provide the justification for it in many ways. But also, they kind of add something, actually, in, in the sense of they add some form of gods in, uh, in another world who are inclined to punish humans if they don't behave right. I mean, sometimes it's just providing the right kinds of sacrifices. So, you know, so long as you keep providing the sacrifices to the god, things will be okay. Um, and that kind of pulls the community together and, uh, uh, in quite an important way, I think, that hunter-gatherers don't. Well, it, it allows them to live, basically, to live in much, much bigger groups. And you can see that uh, in, in the early Neolithic when they start living in villages and then the villages grow into towns and city-states and so on. Uh, and that's when you first see evidence of priesthoods and temples, i.e. religious, specifically religious spaces, which are reserved for those kind of functions only, and, and perhaps evidence of uh, hierarchies within the society, and particularly in, in relation to religious hierarchies. There are re religious specialists, is what happens, who, who, who know how to do things, know how to do the rituals properly, and become the guardians then of those traditions and make sure they don't properly hand them on to the next generation, those kind of things. Effectively, I'm going to steal your your words here and, and feed them back to you and sound smart, but essentially our, it's, our, it's, our nature, it's our brain's sort of predisposition and aptitude for being social that also um, made it ripe for religion Yes, uh, in, in our early development. Yes, I don't, I, I don't think religion would have appeared in the human lineage had we not been so social. But we are social, or we are as social as we are, because that is a key characteristic of all the monkeys and apes, and especially the kind of larger brain ones, so the old world monkeys in particular, and uh, the great apes, um, you know, the whole key to their success, evolutionary success, and they have been one of the most successful uh, zoological families of all, um, uh, certainly among the, the mammals uh, and the birds that, you know, they've been exceedingly, you know, primates were around before the dinosaurs went extinct and they're still here and they've hardly changed except their brains have got bigger. <laughs> basically you know their, their body shape and the way they work as it were is still pretty much uh, as it was 60 million years ago whereas most other groups of animals have changed dramatically you know they've acquired hooves they've acquired fins think of dolphins all these kind of things uh, but anyway the 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 essence of primates social life is that it's a kind of implicit social contract so basically they're clubbing together to 
solve the problems of successful survival and reproduction cooperatively by forming these very stable groups, which are a primate speciality, very much a primate speciality. And we're, we, you know, we're part of that syndrome, if you like. It's just that we do it bigger and better because we've got a bigger and better brain that allows us to do it. But it's spun off the back of this you know, long, long uh, history of um, using sociality as a way of, as, a, as an evolutionary solution to the, 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 the coping with the uh, vicissitudes of uh, um, uh, life on Earth uh, and the uncertainties. But the, the, uh, the, the, what really has made the difference between us and other primates, that's to say why we have religion and they don't, has been essentially the size of groups we're trying to bond together, but also in addition to that, this capacity for mentalizing, which they sort of share, but their capacities in these terms are quite low level. They're probably no better than a five-year-old child can do. But what a human adult can do is kind of like three times better than a five-year-old child in terms of the extent of the mentalizing. So mentalizing is about understanding what's going on in your mind and therefore why you're behaving the way you do. You know, what, what are your intentions when you say something or do something? Um, and that's a much more sophisticated way of working with the environment out there. What it does, of course, is causes us to be so <laughs> uh, immersed in this mentalizing way of looking at the world out there that we attribute mentalizing capacities to absolutely everything <laughs> whether it's whether it's animate or inanimate so you know we speak of you know the the, the sky um, uh, being angry when there's a storm coming up or the sea being angry or you know this uh, clouds are lowering at us <laughs> as though they had eyebrows and a, and a hard stare <laughs> Um, and we kind of do it all the time. We attribute um, life forces, let's call it, to things like springs or trees or particular mountains because, you know, we have this sense that, you know, just as we walk around on the surface, so, you know, other spirit um, forms of life inhabit these these physical features in, in the environment. And that's a consequence of what you mentioned right at the outside is this tendency to try and explain and uh, therefore control the world. And, and that uh, comes directly from this mentalizing capacity because if we couldn't mentalize in the way we do, we would never be able to ask the key question, namely, why does it work like that? Why does the natural world work like that? Uh, is it possible for the natural world to be different? from what we see in front of us. Once you can do that, and no monkey or ape or anybody else on the planet can, can, get, can, can lift themselves to that level of cognition, if you like, and um, ask that question. But once you can ask it, um, you can start to imagine that there are fictional worlds, right? So I'm going to tell you a story about what happened to Jim and Penelope uh, last week, you know, as a straight piece of fiction, you know, a novel. Um, or, you know, I can tell you about places you can't see 
sort of my my travels wandering around never neverland down the road you know in the next valley which you've never visited but i can kind of tell you about it and it's it, that's kind of a real bit and it, it, from there it's a very very short step to sort of saying no there's another world within which we all sit in our physical world which is a kind of spirit world if you like that there are uh, I don't know goblin goblins and in, in, in springs or in in caves and you know and you can go and hear them <laughs> go and go and stick your head into a cave and you can hear the rumblings of the trolls at the base and famously of course that's why what the Vikings when they were sort of wandering around the coast of Britain thought with Manx shearwaters who nest underground and sort of grumble at each other and as as they were sort of wandering around the coastal hills up in the northwest of scotland um you know they could hear uh, these rumblings underground oh, you know, <laughs> the trolls are busy tonight <laughs> yeah when they visited um norway i was struck by how they've still got a very rich sense of how there's a troll for almost every strange well not even strange just everything that goes on in the mountains there's sort of a troll for it, isn't there? There's a yes, troll for that. There's yes, a yeah, yeah. I need these beliefs are incredibly widespread. I mean, we kind of think they're, you know, buried in the deep past, but actually they're still kind of with us. You know, they're reflected in, you know, all these things like making wishes. You know, that, that some springs have sacred properties that. Uh, if you make a wish at them or throw some money in or whatever, um, good luck will befall you. Um, you know, you have all over the world and banyan trees in, in India, for example, which have this sacred property very often of, you know, if you, you tie a message on it, uh, you know, with some colored ribbon or something like that, you know, uh, good fortune will befall you. And, and you know, this is part and parcel of realizing that the world out there in contrast to the way animal, I always describe animals, including monkeys and apes, you know, of, of encountering the world we live in with their noses against the grindstone of it, right? So they just take it as it is. They can't step back from it far enough to kind of go, oh, you know, why does it have to be this way? <laughs> it's painful having my nose ground by to pieces by the, by the world out there. Maybe I could change it. You know, maybe I can. We can do things that will stop the bad things happening, or make it more likely that the good things will happen. And um, you know, th those ideas are still deeply, deeply redolent in our psyche even today. And, you know, people still throw money into. <laughs> fountains in it i'm not sure if they always make make um make wishes when they do it um but you know they they also go what that one step further and they tie uh you know uh, requests to whoever you know for good good luck in their exams or f finding love or you know curing their, their their dreaded diseases or what have you and and we're very susceptible to that and you think you know the evil eye for example this concept that certain people uh, who i suppose you would consider to be kind of witches or wizardy type folk with special powers that if they catch your eye you know can can harm you in in all sorts of ways uh, and indeed that witchery as such you know is a major force that affects you that that um you know and that's still very um, prevalent in in many parts of of africa let's say for example 
you know, that there are people, if, if a death occurs, you know, you don't know why it happened, well, you know, the local witch or the wizard put a spell on them. But, you know, you think of evil eye in Southern Europe, but it was widely, widely relevant. That, that kind of is still there. People still worry about it. Not as much as they did maybe a hundred years ago, but, you know, it's something that still bothers them. We count some of these as superstitions, but, you know, they are deeply ground into our psyche. So the, the, book's, the book's called How Religion Evolved. So to me, that that begs the question, so how do you get across the idea? So do, do you mean by that that there was a sort of, you know, Darwinian selection for those of us who were more predisposed to believe or that the groups that kind of had religion within them or had, had a greater propensity for it, they... They, they proliferated more. It, in a sense, it's a bit of both because it's operating in both directions. I, I mean, I think one of the problems when people think about uh, natural selection, Darwinian ev- evolution, they're really thinking in terms of what Darwin and the early evolutionary people wrote, you know, 150-odd years ago, uh, uh, which was really thinking in terms of individual benefits so the the motor in the end to evolution is um the success with which you propagate your genes technically known as the fitness of the genes it's the property of the genes the the individuals as richard dawkins famously said are merely the vehicles (laughs) that the genes temporarily occupy on their way to um uh, uh uh uh, eternity, if you like, promoting their their survival. What they what has kind of been lost sight of, or perhaps isn't so widely appreciated as it really ought to be, is the fact that these very intensely social species, notably the primates in general, but also some of the species like elephants and the horse family, the zebras, the asses, the horses, and so on, are their principal adaptation to coping with the vicissitudes of survival and successful reproduction is group living. Um, And it's the success with which the group as a whole solves that problem that affects their personal fitness. So this is a, a kind of more complex interplay between these group level effects and uh, how these are costed out at the level of the individual and the individual's genes. So this is what's sometimes called now group augmentations uh, selection or, or group level selection as opposed to group selection, uh, which is really doesn't work. I mean, that's selection for the survival of groups, and that's the end of it. The whole motor of, of uh, the evolutionary processes is the survival and re- successful reproduction of individuals, not of a species or groups or anything like that. But these group level effects were whereby individuals can do better by cooperating, that gives you this kind of multi-level selection process is somewhat more complicated, not necessary. It's kind of a derivative of uh WD Hamilton's concept of inclusive fitness, which was very close to that. And, you know, he was thinking in terms of um essentially kinship groups cooperating, which clearly they they do. Um, <clears throat> this is just extending that uh, a little further. But that, that motor is very, very important. It, it means that there's a two-step process here. So yeah, the, the animal has to be, or the individual has to be able to sort of uh, 
negotiate the successful existence and stability of social groups. Otherwise, it's back down to a lower level of fitness, if you like. doesn't mean to say it's going to go extinct tomorrow. It's just not going to be as successful as it might otherwise have been. Uh, if it, if the individuals cooperate together. So in that sense, what the religion component does is provide a mechanism for solving the um, coordination problem that bedevils all group living species. So if you look at antelope or deer or cattle, you know, they have sort of groups, but they're very temporary. Think of them as herds, really. Um, animals come and go, uh, when they get bored, <laughs> or when they want one, one wants to feed, when the, everybody else goes to rest, and the group sort of breaks up and uh, uh, and dissipates. Uh, and what primates have done is solve that problem of preventing everybody else drifting off, so that the group stays together and, and is always there when you need it. Um, and that that's actually a very taxing problem. That's why they have big brains, essentially. But also, in addition, they need these kind of deep pharmacological mechanisms um, based on these bonding behaviors, grooming in the case of of primates, but augmented for us. I mean, we don't groom because we don't have much fur left except on the top of the head. But what we've done is sort of adapted the grooming patterns and the hand movements of grooming, if you like, in in things like caressing and touching and hugging and and patting and and the like, which we do all the time. You know, we kind of don't think about it because we're concentrating so much on the conversation, (laughs) the intellectual conversation we're having, that we kind of forget that, you know, you're sitting sitting around the table in the pub you're reaching out patting somebody on the back you know or giving them a, a rub on the shoulder uh, and all these kind of things or if they burst into tears you know, giving them a hug all, you know, all these kind of things that we do and we do it all the time um um i hasten to say not usually with strangers it's very very geared to how, how much of that physical touch we engage in is very geared to the emotional quality of the relationship, how close the relationship is to us. But it's there and it's going on constantly and it's triggering the same mechanism in the brain as uh, grooming does in um, uh, monkeys and apes. But what we've done is add to that to increase the kind of number of people we can groom with simultaneously these other things like laughter and singing and and dancing and the like and religion comes into that mix as what seems like my impression is a a really very powerful addition to it so the individual is the one who's benefiting now because you know they're getting all the benefits of living in a group Um, and that's coming you know through being able to <clears throat> solve the problem of keeping the group together, which is what one thing religion does. I mean, it's a nice example, I think, of how well religion works in this context. From 19th century American um, millenarian uh, cults and communes, of which there were, you know, many thousands <laughs> through the 19th century, you know, from the well-known ones like you know, the Mormons and the shakers and so on and to some very very obscure ones which you've never heard of you know they would go out into sort of the desert somewhere or uh, or far away and set up a commune and and live by their principles well the if you look at the secular communes many of which are one of the the 
most of them were influenced by um, uh, Richard Owen, who founded the new Lanark factory community up in um, uh, Lanarkshire in Scotland. Um, and then went off to America because he got fed up with the bureaucracy in England <laughs> in the early 19th century. Uh, you know, these these secular communes, so they were kind of socialist, communalistic, you know, sort of live life together, as it were, in a small community. Um, their a- a- average size at foundation was 50 people, and their survival time on average was around 10 years, 7 to 10 years. And that, they usually fell apart because, you know, the leader ran off with the savings of the, <laughs> that everybody had put their savings into the common pot and eventually the leader either behaved very badly or just ran off with their savings. In contrast, the religious communes had an average foundation size of about 150 and they survived on average for about 70 years. So lots of them are still with us, you know, the the Mormons, the Hutterites. Everybody knows about, uh, you know, people like... Or, Many people know about the Anita community in upstate New York, which survived on into the beginning of the 20th century. I think the Shakers, very famously, because everybody was this fad for Shaker furniture in your kitchen, <laughs> all these kind of things, uh, a few, few, few years ago. You know, they, they were all had deep religious uh, foundations, basically. And I think it was the religious foundations that kept them um, going for so long because what religion did um, is keep the lid on the stresses that otherwise bubble up whenever you're living with other people. Don't we know it? <laughs> um, and, you know, it was sooner or later, just be, you know, other people just become so annoying. You know, you either leave or you um, probably clobber them one you know which is has the same effect because <laughs> it's not very very um, conducive to a peaceful social life if, if there's lots of fights breaking out and that kind of thing so what you know that seems to be what's happening you know that's a sort of feature of primate social life it's a feature of our social life and but what religion then allowed us to do is just keep the lid on that enough by um by two ways i think particularly in the 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 modern doctrinal phase is it uh, um where you have these bigger communes as it were um that were set up is you've got a combination of a a policeman in the sky um situation where you've got you know the god in your religion because most of them were in that, that particular case obviously were christian um, in some form, uh, you know, and, and God was wagging his finger. You know, this is a kind of more benevolent God than the kind of earlier gods who required sacrifices. To you. These, these, these are mostly the gods who take an interest in human affairs and, and uh, you know, sort of punish the ba- the backsliders and you know praise the ones who stick to the stick to the rules. Uh, so you got that co- combined with. The kind of, if you like, that's top-down discipline being imposed by by the religious hierarchy, but that's combined with this bottom-up, very, very old, shamanic, animist-type, trance-based, rich, highly ritualized uh, form of um, religion, which is, you know, providing, you know, it's it's committing you to the principles of the religion 
and therefore to the other people you're living with. So it, it's allowing you uh, to both behave better, but also be more tolerant, I think is what it's doing of other people's because of your commitment to, to the community as a whole. If you'd like to hear Robin and I dig deeper into how spirituality weaves its magic on our brains, check out Instant Genius Extra, a bonus podcast available via subscription on Apple's podcast app. Alternatively, do check out How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures, which is on sale now and published by Pelican, an imprint of Penguin Books. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC, a science-focused magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, you can find us online at sciencefocus.com. See you next time. Thank you.